the National Archives podcast series, Writer of the Month, Digging for Richard III, How Archaeology Found the King, presented by Mike Pitts. I'm going to talk about Richard III. The other day, I read on the Hello website, the Queen met Philippa Langley and John Ashdown Hill. Had they always thought Richard III was buried in Leicester, asked Her Majesty. Yes, replied Ms Langley. In fact, once we looked into it, the car park looked like a real possibility. Yes, replied the Queen. To find a king in a car park is not an everyday occurrence. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why she presented them each with an MBE. Now, finding Richard III was an archaeological project. By typical standards, the excavation was small, but its impact on history, on archaeology, on Leicester, on us, is on an altogether different scale. Back in May, Leicester told us about the impact of the reburial of a medieval king in their city. The press headlined the cost three million pounds. But in the detail was something bigger, Between September 2012 and March 2015, these things happened. Richard III's grave was found and excavated. The interior of Leicester Cathedral was refurbished. New art was commissioned and new displays were installed. A building was acquired, converted into a visitor centre and successfully opened. Leicester's sculpture of Richard III was restored and moved closer to the cathedral and a new sculpture was commissioned. A judicial review was held into where the king's remains should be buried. And watched by millions around the world, the king was duly buried in Leicester at the end of a week of ceremonies and celebration. Oh, and after paying for all of that, Leicester made an estimated £62 million. And that's just the beginning. (laughs) In a public ballot for reburial week seats at Leicester Cathedral, 5,000 people applied on the first day, five times the available spaces at all of three services. 35,000 lined the streets to see Richard III's cortege pass. 20,000 queued to see the coffin in Leicester Cathedral. And I know at least one person was in that queue who is in this room now. (laughs) More people must have learned more about Richard III over the past couple of years than has happened since, I don't know, since before he was born, perhaps. I cannot think of an archaeological dig anywhere that has had such an immediate public impact other than the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb. Philippa Langley is a star. Julian Fellows got it right when he was on the Channel 4 sofa outside the cathedral. He commended her extraordinary achievement, I mean almost mythical achievement, in persisting in what she believed to be true. This is the man who wrote Downton Abbey. Do not mess with him. (laughs) So much has been happening, it's been hard to keep up, even for someone like me who has a professional interest. So I thought it would be good to run through some of the key moments as a reminder with the occasional observation of my own. I think Fellows hit the nail on the head. This is the stuff of myth. And like any good story, it has twists, 
Later, I will suggest that Philippa Langley did something few yet credit her for. She changed history. But almost in the way of a Greek tragedy, this is change she had not sought. Her persistence found the grave, but then it found things she would rather not have done. It began in 1998 when Langley went into an Edinburgh bookshop and left with Paul Kendall's book about Richard III. Kendall combined the style of a novel with historical sleuthing that appeared to uncover a controversy, a, a, a conspiracy to hide Richard III's true qualities. Josephine Tay had put the same case more honestly in a real novel. It was inspiring stuff. Langley had chanced on a story of romance and politics, betrayal and deception that would make a perfect screenplay. She wanted to walk the places that Richard had walked. She got in touch with some members of the Richard III Society in Leicester who told her there was a bit of the friary left where Richard had been buried. So off she went to visit Leicester. Stories of Richard III, more or less confused, were imprinted on the city. The route out to Bosworth is still known as King Richard's Road. When the area was developed in the 19th century, the Wars of the Roses offered a handy lexicon of street names. As we progress into the city, we come to Bow Bridge, where the road crosses the River Saw. In 1856, a local man fixed a stone slab here, marking what was commonly believed to be the site where Richard III's body had been thrown into the river. A few years later, the entire bridge was rebuilt in cast iron as a memorial to the king. Its parapet bears roses, and at the centre, Richard III's crest and motto, Loyalty Binds Me. At exactly the time Leicester built its new bridge, York built an iron bridge with roses. This is Lendl Bridge, and it's a posh version of Bow Bridge. When I was writing my book, I was fined for driving over this bridge in a traffic experiment the city has since been forced to abandon. Now, opposite Bow Bridge, Philippa Langley found a defiant statue. Look at me, it seemed to say. Forget the myths, do I look like someone to be dumped in a river? The story continued in the city. In the cathedral was a memorial slab set in the floor in 1980. The boundaries of Greyfriars Friary, the place where we knew Richard had been buried, were remembered in street names. And here is one of several Richard III Society plaques marking the site of the church. And finally, the bit of old wall. It was in a car park, and as you can see, it's a pretty unprepossessing thing. In fact, you can barely see it. It's hidden mostly behind that little wooden hut, the car park attendant's hut. And it's said to be all that remains of Greyfriars Friary buildings above ground. Uh, someone now will probably pay it a bit more attention. And then, famously, mythically, <coughs> Philippa saw another car park opposite. We know what happened Next, there and then in 2004, ignoring everything she had read about Richard's body being cast into the river, she decided to look for his grave. She went back to the same spot a year later. Someone had painted a white letter R on the tarmac. With remarkable clarity, Langley knew there were three things she needed to do to make this work. First, she needed to show that Richard's body was still in the ground. This is before they start excavating. Second, 
She needed to find the site of the church so she would know where to dig. And finally, once she'd found the king's bones, she had to prove to everyone else that they really were his. Now, to the dismay of those of us who like to think of research as a process of critical inquiry, obsessive attention to detail, and sheer hard slog, Langley rapidly crossed all three of her hurdles, thanks in particular to one man. John Ashdown Hill had just found someone whose mitochondrial DNA should have been identical to Richard III's. That would sort the identification. Ashdown Hill told her there was no historical basis for the story that the body had been dug up, so it should still be there in the ground. And finally, a small excavation at the site of the old NatWest Bank, near the plaque commemorating the king's grave, found no evidence for Greyfriars. To Langley, that meant the friary had to be the other side of the street, and over there were those car parks. She was ready to go. Philippa Langley is a facilitator. She gets things done. She relied on historians to do the history. Now she needed archaeologists. Ashdown Hill had tried to get Time Team interested. They hadn't bitten. And I wouldn't have either. Urban sites are too complex for a weekend dig, which is why, if you think about it, Time Team almost always worked out in the country. If Time Team had found Richard III's grave, they would not have been able to excavate it or afford the research that showed it to be his. Langley knew someone who knew and loved Leicester, who understood its archaeology who was in a position to command a large team with a large budget and enjoyed a punt. And this is Richard Buckley. He had no interest in looking for a king's grave. Anyway, he imagined, the body had long disappeared in the river. And in fact, his first archaeological experience was digging as a schoolboy on a site immediately adjacent to that stone slab that described the body being thrown into the river. But soon he realised that to find the grave, Langley had to find Greyfriars Church. And that was interesting. Philippa Langley had met the man who could make her dream happen. Buckley's team set to work and soon found that Ashdown Hill was right. The records seemed to show that the grave had not been destroyed after the dissolution. Suggestions that it might still be in one of the car parks south of the cathedral, in fact, went back to at least 1962. But what really surprised the archaeologists was the realisation that a large area where the friary had been appeared never to have been built over since it had been demolished. Now on this Google view, the green outline is the friary boundary as it was mapped in 1740. Going back through old maps and records, the archaeologists could find little sign of major development beyond the edges and along New Street down the middle. The red outlines are the three car parks, these had been clear ground ever since the friary had been demolished. Remains of the church and other buildings, and perhaps even the grave, stood a good chance of being there below the tarmac. So in 2012, the archaeologists conducted a small dig. The private owner of the most westerly car park, the one on, that was on the left, was not keen on losing his income, so they had two to work in. The larger owned by the city council and the smaller, an old-school playground. Over a couple of weeks, they dug three long trenches. These were what archaeologists call evaluations, not proper excavations, but small things, just to test the ground to see if there's anything still there, indeed very much in the style of a time-team weekend dig. 
you can, I think you can see already how this story is extraordinary for the twists and luck that was involved in them actually hitting the right spot, which they did. Under Matthew Morris's direction, their trenches found the remains of enough walls for them to map out the friary church and estimate the rest of the layout. And, of course, these uh, medieval friaries have a pretty standard plan. Um, so once you find a bit of a wall in the right direction, in the right place, and you can identify which part of the complex it is, you can estimate where the rest of it should be. Now, they also found a handful of graves. One of them, the furthest to the left, held the remains of a man and was where it should be if it was to be Richard III's in the church choir, where we have historical documents that specify exactly that. Interestingly, when the archaeologists returned to the site in 2013 for a proper excavation of the church, they opened the other graves. All the bodies turned out to be women, but that's another story. On the right, foundations for small Victorian outbuildings had nearly removed it. It was the most extraordinary and unexpected outcome. They had found a skeleton that might be that of Richard III. And as we all know, and we really do know, with no grounds whatever for any doubt. Over the next two years or so, the skeleton was shown to be just that. Now, I swear, I, I should have put an Easter Island statue photograph here, shouldn't I, when I <laughs> from the reaction at the beginning, but here we are, Stonehenge. Now, as we're in the National Archives, I wanted to make a quick diversion to another recent excavation of human remains at Stonehenge in 2008. I was one of the directors, and we recovered all that survives from around 60 burials. And um, it came to mind now because only last week the Ministry of Justice gave us permission to hold on to these and, they, and the remains will all be going into Salisbury Museum. Now the key facts of this story are that excavation a century ago found enough burials to identify Stonehenge as the largest cremation cemetery in prehistoric Britain. In 1935, all the remains were reburied on site. Now, advances in forensic archaeology mean that today we can learn a great deal from these remains, which had never been studied, so we re-excavated them. They are set to change the way we think about Stonehenge. Now, 15 years ago, I found a letter in the public record office, written in 1935, that is the only known document until we actually dug them up, proving that what was buried there were those human remains. At present, I have the bones in my loft, the writer told the ministry. Behind scraps of paper can lie astonishing stories. Back to the car park. Now, out of sheer curiosity, I wanted to know more about that R. Sadly, no one thought to save it, and it's not an exhibit in the visitor centre, but it is out there in cyberspace. This is an old Google satellite view of the car parks. Here I've highlighted the lined spaces down the right side of the council's park, and marked the site of the R with a little yellow blob at the top. It was a reserved space for Leicester age concern. That was one of, the, one of the things that I exclusively discovered in the course of writing the book. And here I've superimposed the archaeologist's plan of the friary. You can see at the top Richard's grave, the red blob, and about five metres to the north, the R. Not exactly the same place, but pretty close. And while we're in Google land, I recommend, if you're interested in this, in touring Greyfriars in Google Street View, where there's a succession of views at different dates over the years. And if you look at this history, you can see the area, by complete chance, when the cameras went down New Street, when the trench with Richard's grave in it was open. 
And at the back of that photograph, in the sunlight, you can see a, a row of, uh, of metal fencing. And in the middle, there's a little kink in the dark line, which is the trench, and that is where Richard's grave is. It was, you might say, the most successful six hours and 34 minutes in the history of archaeology. That, Matthew Morris told me, is how long, including a lunch break, it took to find him. <laughs> Although at the time, there was absolutely no reason for thinking he had anything to do with the king. From the time stamps on the university photographer's image files, they ascertained that the mechanical digger broke ground on the 25th of August 2012 at 8.31am and Morris established that a human bone was part of a fully articulated skeleton at 3.05pm. And then all the trouble began. This is the scene outside the High Court after the completion of judicial review proceedings in March last year. A few people calling, calling themselves the Plantagenet Alliance wanted Richard's remains buried in York. They claimed to be a mouthpiece for a medieval king on the grounds they were related to him, something for which they never offered any evidence. But they stood a reasonable chance of being right, at least in that respect. One estimate of the number of living people sharing a similar relationship is 15 million. So if you like, you can go home and say, I just listened to a lecture by a descendant of Richard III. <laughs> it's a good chance of a certain type of descendant that I am just that. Now, Richard III has no living direct descendants. He is not known to have had any grandchildren. He has collateral descendants, ancestors of his siblings, and other direct relations. As Rob Eastway, a mathematician, put it, since there's a chance that anyone with English ancestry is related to Richard III, we should all be able to vote on where he should be buried. But who is this we? Kevin Shurer researched the genealogy, working with Thierry King, who led the DNA analyses. He noted that many collateral descendants live around the world outside the UK, and few, if any, would be aware of their connections each one of which would take extensive research to prove. Consultation limited by relationships would simply be impossible. In the event, the review found everything had been correctly done, leaving the reburial decision with the Leicester authorities who had already declared it was appropriate to bury him in Leicester. Now, this was not a whim. It followed standard reburial procedure, which is to go for the consecrated ground nearest to the original burial site, which actually caught out the Druids at Stonehenge who wanted to rebury the remains that we had excavated, or re-rebury the remains they had excavated. We had, we had excavated at Stonehenge. They wanted to rebury them at Stonehenge, which of course they couldn't do because it's no longer a consecrated burial site. It might have been in the Neolithic, but not today. And contrary to some wild claims, there is no historical evidence to suggest where Richard wanted to be buried. All we have is this sort of thing. Now, this is a headline in 2014. Revealed, King Richard III planned to be buried in York, not Leicester. But when you read the full story, the source, this old letter, Chris, Kid Chris Skidmore says, it doesn't prove that Richard wished to be buried at York. Now, Richard himself may not have yet decided on the matter. We can assume he entered the field of Bosworth, expecting to leave it a victor. It transpired that the city council had seen itself as the official owner, I quote, the official owner of the king's remains, a misconception as English law recognises no right of ownership in human bodies. It had also proposed a consultation over their future, 
raising the possibility that the entire circus might have been avoided if it had kept out of it. The judgment found the council's intervention was unnecessary, unhelpful, and misconceived. The Plantagenet alliance went quiet. An angry then-Justice Secretary, Chris Grayling, already unhappy with the system of judicial review, complained that the alliance was a shell company set up to avoid paying legal costs. Defence set back his ministry £82,000. The university, £70,100. The cathedral, £7,000. And Leicester City Council, I hope there are no Leicester ratepayers here, £85,900. <laughs> a total of nearly a quarter of a million pounds. To put that into perspective, by the end of 2012, the Richard III Society had put about 20000 into the dig and Leicester University, 115000 little more than half the court costs. Leicester Cathedral, to its obvious delight and relief, could continue with its reburial preparations. But the business had fostered animosity and the spread of misinformation and consumed much time and money. There were few winners. Yet it was not all bad. The delayed reburial allowed things to proceed that would never otherwise have been completed in time. As soon as the 2013 dig finished, the city started to create a new visitor centre, changing the car park. And this is the view from the entrance to the new centre, looking towards the cathedral across the statue of Richard III, now moved up from near Bow Bridge. The street has been paved for pedestrian use only. Now, by chance, the cathedral was already deep in major landscaping and building developments outside, but now it had to plan alterations inside as well. By the time the judgment came down on the review, they were able to swing into action. Richard III and the growing number of visitors he was inspiring unleashed the necessary funds for a radical reordering of the cathedral. The spaces have been opened up. There is a new high altar in the sanctuary, a new chapel of Christ the King at the East End, new flooring, a new cathedral, the bishop's seat, new furniture and interpretation units and new stained-glassed windows. It really is a different place. And, of course, there is now, at this site, a striking new royal tomb. No British cathedral can have undergone such rapid and dramatic a transformation in modern times, architecturally and separately emotionally. This all adds up to a fundamental and positive development for the city, None of this would have happened had Philippa Langley not walked into that car park in 2004. Meanwhile, archaeologists and scientists were busy publishing their, defini their definitive research into the excavations and finds. It's not all done even now. Study continues into the Friary buildings and other remains. Turi King has not yet completed her analysis of Richard III's full genome. But there is much new to tell. As an archaeologist, I found one of the most interesting studies to be of chemical isotopes extracted from Richard's bones. Everything that remained after the analysis was returned to Leicester University and placed in the coffin in little bags of powder. This is what they found. Now this graph, don't worry about the details, I'm not going to get technical here, okay? Um, but it's very graphic, as it were. This, this, this diagram shows carbon and nitrogen isotope data from, bo from medieval bones from rural villages in Yorkshire, clergy from York and Richard III. As you move up from the bottom, 
you see a growing amount of fish protein in the diet. Either there was something wrong with the sample, or one prior up there really liked his fish. Now, looking at Richard, different parts of the body grow at different times. Teeth are fixed at childhood. His thigh bone would have been at least 10 years old at death. But ribs regenerate every two to five years. So these suggest he ate more fish late in his life. Okay, the older bones are lower down the graph, less fish. The younger, higher, more fish. Overall, Richard's diet was impressively aristocratic. He, he, you can see he, he outbeat most, but not all, of the friars. <laughs> he was, it was high in meat and fish, some of which were from the sea, though for a period from the age of around five, it was heavier on grains. This youthful gruel episode was offset by greater luxuries when he was king, including more freshwater fish and wildfowl and wine. The study also supported Richard's known origins in Northamptonshire, but suggested he had moved out of eastern England by age seven and lived further west, possibly in the Welsh marches, returning to eastern England as an adolescent or young adult. Now, all of that comes from archaeological science. When I first learned about it, I knew at once what many historians would be thinking. Fancy that. Richard III lived in eastern England and ate had a posh diet. Who would have guessed? And I'd agree up to a point, but there is more to this. First, this is real new evidence, not just stuff that is assumed. Secondly, and importantly, the science here is quite complex. It's well established, but still growing. There is all to prove or disprove in an area that offers much in understanding ancient lives. The very rare chance, extremely rare chance, to study an identified historical individual with a good record allows the science to be tested against prior information. This is valuable for specialists. Further related studies and commentaries are likely. Here, as in several other ways, Richard III is contributing to science, to a greater understanding of our national story. There's been other stuff. This is perhaps the most famous, the, 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 the recreation of Richard's face by forensic scientist Caroline Wilkinson. A lot of emotive things have been said about this, which is fine and understandable, and I still have to remind myself that this is not just an imaginative model. It's a real face, forensically built on a king's real bones. But because it's real, it has scientific value that perhaps has been overlooked. First, through comparisons with paintings, it has contributed to confirming the skeleton's true identity. Secondly, it will help new studies of the paintings themselves, from which we still have much to learn and myths to dispel. Early results from the genome study suggested Richard had blue eyes and light-coloured hair. The model was promptly given a blonde wig, which frankly looked absurd. Uh, that has now been replaced with something resembling the light brown hair in Richard III's earliest portraits. The continuing genome research will again help with understanding these paintings. It's worth making the point, however, that the humanity in the model's face, the gaze that led Philippa Langley to say he didn't look like a tyrant, does not come from science. It's art, guesswork. Caroline Wilkinson could show precisely the shape of Richard's face. What she can't do is show the personality in the eyes, in the skin, and the soft flesh. For that, we're in more traditional historical territory. 
Now look at this. This is just one research paper with 18 authors. A great deal of academic resources have, have been poured into researching Richard. This was completed less than four months before the reburial. So in a sense, without the judicial review, in theory, the king would have been reburied without having been proved to be the king. As you will know, they concluded that the skeleton was definitely Richard's. To get there, they used more than the DNA evidence and genealogy, though these were important. For that, Thierry King and Kevin Schurer worked on the early leads established by John Ashdown Hill. But radiocarbon data were also considered, as were age and sex of the skeleton, and the presence of scoliosis and perimortem wounds. Those are wounds um, received around the time of death, and we can't say whether they were precisely whether they were before death, at the moment of death, or immediately after death, perimortem. Even the fact that five men who should have shared the same Y-chromosome haplotype as skeleton one, but turned out not to, was brought into the equation. Somewhere in their ancestry, at least two male births have been attributed to the wrong father. Um, and you can understand why at least one of these men decided to remain anonymous. <laughs> A useful reminder that, as Josephine Tay might have written, we should take nothing for granted. Now, I'm going to say something about Richard's wounds and scoliosis in a minute, but I wanted to lead into that by considering a fundamental question. John Snow asked it at the end of Channel 4's excellent coverage of the reburial week. Have the bones changed anything? Now, some prominent historians have said they haven't. Mary Beard, within minutes of the announcement, questioned the discovery's historical significance. Paul Lay, editor of the magazine History Today, thought that, I quote, this episode tells us little new about the past. It's also silly to Michael Hicks, biographer of Richard III, that he can't even bring himself to accept that the king's grave has been found. Now, in one important sense, the bones have changed a great deal. They have affected people's lives. Every organisation involved, from the Richard III Society to the printer who freely supplied the orders of service to the cathedral, continued to benefit from the publicity, as did many who had no hand in it. Now, Socks for You, <laughs> Socks for You commemorated, I quote from their publicity, the events in 1487 uh, with designer hosiery. The Midland Bells Agency offered scantily clad escorts for the reburial. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a slide for that. But <laughs> and so on. Now, we're all bigger than such stuff. It doesn't say that Leicester was in it for the money. It just reminds us that we live in a complex world. There are all sorts of people out there. The boost to Leicester and the university is almost incalculable, and that can only be a good thing. Many individuals, too, have been deeply affected. The project will attract new students into history and archaeology, indeed it clearly already is, and stimulate new lines of research. Especially, it has inspired a huge public. After the graves' discovery was announced, annual visitors to Leicester Cathedral rose from 30,000 to 160,000. Between the reception of the remains on the Sunday and the reinterment the following Thursday morning, the cathedral was overwhelmed. It extended its opening hours. In two and a half days, over 20,000 people from around the world saw the pall-draped coffin. Winding around the city streets, 
The cues echo those famously seen for the British Museum's Tutankhamun exhibition in 1972. Does anyone remember that? I was there. Tutankhamun drew 7,000 visitors a day. Admittedly, over a much shorter period, Richard III's daily score was 8,000. Richard's tomb will be a place of international concern and of continuing controversy. It will be a draw for modern pilgrimages, encouraging people to reflect on Shakespeare and on history, on the nature of absolute power and the indignities of personal pain. It was in this sense that John Snow answered his own question. Yes, the bones have changed things. The reburial captured imaginations. But there is another meaning to the question. This is the one that John Snow's interviewees responded to as they sat on the red sofa in front of the cathedral, immediately after the coffin had been lowered into the grave. Has the discovery changed the way we read history? Not really, said Helen Caster, the resident historian. And then a remarkable thing happened. After all the interviews with Ricardians, archaeologists, historian, craftsmen and women, people from the church, the street, the king's descendants and many others, it took an actor and storyteller to see the point. Something has changed, said Julian Fellows. The whole idea, and I'm quoting him here, the whole idea that all the hunchback Richard the villain was invented by the Tudors, now we know he was hunchbacked, so there is some truth in that version. Now, our immediate reaction to that, I'm, I'm sure for many of us at least, is leaving aside the stuff about Tudors, is to say we now know he wasn't hunchbacked. And that's what Helen Caster said. But Fellow's point was that neither Shakespeare nor Thomas More, who inspired Shakespeare, had dreamt up the condition they described from nothing. They took a germ of an idea and for their own reasons made hay with it. A similar point comes from the wounds on Richard's skeleton studied in unprecedented forensic detail. They are atypical for medieval battle but remarkably consistent with near contemporary texts describing his death. In many ways historians, in, in ways many historians had not predicted. These are colourful records, songs and poems traditionally regarded as unreliable witnesses. Many have dismissed the text's suggestions of humiliation, and why not, without corroborative evidence. But here I think we see the ultimate achievement of Philippa Langley's quest. She brought in archaeology and she changed history. Now Rosemary Horrocks is the author of a distinguished book about Richard III, she was troubled by Moore's simplistic betrayal of a hated, deformed king, the caricature that inspired Shakespeare's compelling stage tyrant. Just before the reburial, the British Academy hosted lectures about the skeleton in the car park. Horrocks was one of the speakers. Most of the stuff from the dig, she said, relates to the king's appearance, which, I quote, will not force a rethink of political history. We knew Shakespeare exaggerated. But there was something else, the post-mortem mutilation. This refers to two stab wounds, one in the back and one in his buttocks, delivered after his death. And we say that because uh, neither of these wounds in themselves, in the short term, would have been in the least bit fatal. The fatal wounds were all delivered to his head, and at a time when he was likely still wearing his armour, and these could only have been caused when his body had been stripped naked. 
the angle of the wounds makes sense if, as records describe, his body was at that point hanging over a horse. Horrocks was shocked by this. In those days, stabbing the corpse of a king was not something you would expect people to do. But if it was true, Richard III's desecration, I quote, was a sign of anger and hatred and needs to be taken seriously. Perhaps, she is saying, a censorious view of the king was not a subsequent creation. The evidence came from the ground. Further insights came shortly after the reburial in a fascinating article by Marianne Lunt, a lecturer at the School of English in Leicester. She writes about Richard's scoliosis. She describes an extraordinary premonition of a scene during the reception service in the cathedral. Now here you can see Jackie Binns's black pall being lowered onto the coffin by four men, descendants of peers of the realm who fought in the Wars of the Roses. When Richard was crowned, writes Lund, his body, unarrayed and unclothed for anointing by the archbishop, was hidden from the congregation by four knights of the garter, holding a pall. She explains how the king's physician would have both treated his spinal condition and along with his tailors and other attendants forever concealed it from a wider public. Only at his death did it become known. And at that very moment, notwithstanding present protestations that scoliosis does not make a hunched back, a myth may have been born. Today, in liberal societies such as our own, we do not connect physical conditions with states of mind or character. Langley's project has, I suggest, gone some way to demystifying scoliosis, an important achievement on its own. Channel 4 tracked down Dominic Smee as a sufferer of scoliosis comparable to Richard III's. No one who saw the film where he learned to fight in full armour on horseback can be in any doubt about the condition. It is a back condition. It does not disable people. It, did not, it does not make monsters. But things were different in 1485. Almost certainly, Richard would have expected people to judge him for his scoliosis had they known. It makes sense that only at his death did the secret get out. It also makes sense in the culture of the times that people who wished to, dis to besmirch his reputation or who already disliked him would exploit his condition. Yet they may not have needed to make up the hunchback. When a typical scoliosis sufferer reaches to touch their toes, ribs attached to the spine rise up on one side of the back to create a bulge. The phenomenon is so clear it is used as a medical diagnostic tool, sometimes known as the Adams forward bend test. With Richard's naked body doubled over a horse for the journey into Leicester, his rib hump, as it is often called, would have been displayed for all to see. For some, this is difficult stuff. The new mix of archaeology, science, history, art, and more offers rich material for debate, research, and new understandings. This is an extraordinary achievement to change and to promise to change history and to do so not in a closeted academic library, but in full view of the world, followed by millions. We should thank Shakespeare, said Julian Fellows, for animating Richard III's memory. Through Philippa Langley and the Richard III Society, he inspired debates which centuries later led to the rediscovery of his body and his proper burial. And we should thank Philippa Langley. Richard III 
will not be forgotten. The King lives. This talk was recorded on 18th of November 2015 at the National Archives Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.